Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Hey everyone. So on today's episode, we have Evan Main Donald. Now I saw him first speak at a Partners in Property event and he was very relaxed and very calm. And, you know, I think most of his presentation was about having a design-led approach in property. Yes, he spoke about figures. Yes, he spoke about profit. But, you know, sometimes when you hear people and they, the kind of profit is just a side thought it's like yeah we did all this the design was incredible we used space so well and you know we helped the council and then we made a couple of quid but you know the design was amazing we broke ceiling prices and and that's how we came across like super passionate super super interested in property in design in doing things differently i just thought no this is sort of a different approach you know normally the figures excite people but i really like the way he went about it and he also spent a bit of time talking about personal brand and social media and how that's useful to property investment he also has crowdfunded a deal and he's built more than a hundred properties yes more than a hundred properties have been built from bricks and another good stuff by him in his company now that is a huge number of properties and these have been worth over 22 million and he has 50 million in the pipeline So you can just imagine the scale and level that Evan works at. But when you listen to him, you know, you'll hear how humble and how passionate he really is. But also that it's taken him 16 years to get to this level. Yes, anyone can be a property investor and build from land. However, just remember, it's taken him 16 years. Evan Maindonald, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Thanks, Tej. It's a pleasure to be here. No, the pleasure's mine. You know what? I saw you speak at the Partners in Property event uh, hosted by Sue Sims, Adam Lawrence, Ross Harper and Shabazz, I think. And you came on and, you know, you know, didn't know anything about you. Even though I think I'd, I'd seen your properties on Instagram before and just thought, oh, they look, they look really pretty. Cool. Didn't think anything of it. And then you did your presentation, which was awesome. And then what really caught me was you spoke about like building a personal brand and producing content, doing videos, podcasts. And then we kind of spoke about your design led approach. And I thought, hmm, you know, Evan's kind of different because a lot of developers and investors come on stage, talk about the property, the figures, the deals, whereas you... I don't know, you, you focused on the kind of uh, the branding and the marketing and the swag element, which I really liked because it, it's just something different. So we're going to have plenty to talk about today. But what I'd like to, to start with is for people who don't know you, before you got into property, what were you doing? So um, quite a lot of things, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, I, was, uh, I did a degree in computer science and I worked in the, uh, the telecoms and IT industry. So um, I... Um, came to the UK in 1992, and um, I had been working for a company in New Zealand selling computer systems. Um, I ended up working for BT in the UK, and I started in a sort of a juniorish sales role. Ended up in a uh, a role where I was selling international telecoms networks. Um, that was that was a very interesting role. I was doing a lot of travel. I think uh, for about two or three years on a row, I spent more time outside the UK than in the UK. I actually spent more on my expenses than I got paid, and I 
and I was being paid a reasonable amount. So um, it, it was an interesting time. I spent a lot of time in lots of different countries, ended up doing a, um, a big joint venture um, telecoms deal in Japan, a hundred million pound deal with a, a company called Mar- Marabini. Um, I then ended up running a, a business unit in BT with responsibility for about a billion pounds in revenues. Um, BT put me through an MBA program. And uh, I came out of that in 2000, uh, went, left and went to work for a technology startup. Um, that, uh, as technology startups do, um, was a fairly short-lived um, thing. I got out of that with a little bit of money. Um, and I found myself at a sort of a juncture where I, um, I needed to make a decision about what I did next. And so I decided to start my own company. It's something I've been wanting to do for a long time. Um, I was at the point where I had the financial resources that, would enable me to do so. I'd been interested in property for some long time. I'd, I'd, I'd been investing actually in, in some schemes or a scheme that, or it's not really a scheme, but I'd, I'd been doing an investment with another another property developer in New Zealand. And so it just, it, it kind of all came about. And I think, I think the other thing that sort of got me to the point where I decided that I wanted to start my own company was um, having done the MBA program, I did an MBA at a Swiss business school called IMD. One of the things that caused me to do was really reevaluate what um, I wanted to do and what I was good at. And the thing I think that became clear to me is that actually I'm somebody who works much better in an entrepreneurial environment than in a, a highly structured um, corporate environment. And so um, while making the leap from corporate life into running my own company was a bit like jumping off a cliff, I think the metaphor is jump <laughs> off the cliff and assemble the aircraft on the way down. <laughs> but but and it, it has felt a bit like that at times. Um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go back. I wouldn't look back at all. I think it's uh, you know I, I enjoy what I do, and I um, am doing something new and different every day. And so um, I think it's uh, for me for me it's a one way journey. I certainly couldn't go back for work, to working for somebody else again. Wow. So then what made you decide to invest in the UK, not New Zealand? Well, so when I started doing property development and investment here, um, I'd been living in the UK for almost 10 years. Um, In fact, I had been living here for 10 years. And so I suppose the longer you live in a country, um, the um, more anchored you become there. I mean, my, my my mum was born in the UK, so you could say that I'm... I'm half English, I suppose you you are where you grew up, and I grew up in New Zealand, so I feel very much like um, my roots are in New Zealand. But with that said, I've spent more of my life in the UK than I have in New Zealand, so I've got a foot in both places. Um, I think the, the the culture, New Zealand culture, is quite similar to UK culture in many ways, and so I think English people tend to feel quite comfortable when they go to, to New Zealand, and and the same is true in reverse. We um, we have a lot of a lot in common, I think, as countries. Yeah. Okay. And then what was your first property purchase that kind of then led to where we are now? Actually, the first property purchase I made was I, I bought a house in, in Hammersmith in, um, in 1992. I paid £130,000 for it. It was a, a four-bed house. Um, so actually, I, at that point, I'd not bought any property in New Zealand. Um, I was renting a flat at the time. Uh, somewhere else in London, I think I was paying about £500 a month in rent. Um, I bought this house. My mortgage on it was about £500 a month. It had four bedrooms, so I lived in one. I let out the other three. So I ended up with £500 a month income from each of the rooms. So essentially, I paid my mortgage. I had £1,000 in income left over, and I lived for free. So actually, while it was 
purchase of a house to live in, I suppose you could say I've, I've always thought of property as being an investment and that was a good investment. I suppose you could, you could call it an HMO. That's what people would call it these days. But <laughs> it's interesting actually because that, that, that way of buying a property is something that a number of people I know have done. I know Simon Zucci bought his first property um, that way and I know a number of – and I know Mike Frisbee did a similar thing. So it's, uh, it seems to be quite a common thread for, um, for people in the property world. Hmm. So, so you went from that that HMO and that you know that property in Hammersmith, which listening to the price of that, I can just imagine it's worth like seven times that now. Maybe I don't know how much is expensive. So, uh, no, I, I would say probably worth one and a half million now. Oh, um, more than okay. I, 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 was, I mean, I, I sold it. Funny thing was, the neighbour when I, the day that I completed on it, the neighbour said to ask me how much I paid for it, and I told her, and she said, "Oh, you paid too much." <laughs> and then I sold. Sold it. I mean, imagine being able to buy a house, a four-bed house in Hammersmith, now for 130,000 pounds. But that was in '92, and that was really at that point the UK had just come out of a pretty serious recession, and I suppose people were very nervous about property. And I suppose what she said probably reflected that. But um, I sold that house two years later for 250,000 pounds, and so that was my first real property transaction, and it gave me a lump of equity that I could then go on and do other things with. Okay, so then you know. When we look at your portfolio now, and if anyone you know looks at your website, and they all should, it's melthomes.co.uk, really very nicely designed website, and look at your properties and what you're doing, very much focused on development, you know, conversions, things that are quite big compared to you know buy to lets and HMOs. How did you kind of get from that first deal to sort of where we are now? And that's a big question, so kind of answer it however you like. Well, yeah, so. Lots of small steps is probably the best way of summarizing the answer. But actually, um, I think the when I bought that first property, I was I had a job, I had a full time job, and so it wasn't property wasn't my sole focus at that point in time. I was doing lots of other things, and but so I guess you could say at that time I was a property investor, and I was buying places. So, so after I bought the house and, and sold the house in Hammersmith, I bought a flat in Westminster. It was an ex-council flat that I refurbished. I paid, I think, £115,000 for that. It's an SW1. Again, you wouldn't, you wouldn't pay that these days. Again, <laughs> sold that, sold, I refurbished that, sold it a few years later for about £300,000. I bought a house in Hammersmith, um, which I lived in, um, which I subsequently sold. And then I bought another a, a house out in Gloucestershire, a place that I still own. It's called Danby Lodge. It's an old... It's a grade two listed um, former hunting lodge and a couple of acres of land. Um, and so I moved out to Gloucestershire because at the time I was working from home. I, I think it was, I, I, I've already said to you I was traveling a lot. And so uh, it didn't really matter where I was when I was working at home. I needed, needed to be reasonably close to an airport um, because I was traveling a lot. And so I thought if I'm going to work in a house in London um, with a Small patio garden. I might as well work in a. I might as well work in a, a somewhere out in the country where there's lots of space and it's very pleasant. Um, so I still own that place. Um, we actually short term let it now, and I stay there when I'm, I'm I'm up in Gloucestershire. But I started my property development business up there, and so I guess the transition point for me was in 2001, 2002, when I when I um, when I got out of the um, the technology startup that I was working for. Um, I just you know, I, I, I suppose my, my um, thoughts have been drifting more and more towards property because um, one of the other things that I've done is 
I'd invested some money with a with a guy called Mike Woodward, a friend of mine in New Zealand. He's also a property developer. Um, he uh, he needed some money. Um, he needed some cash, and he needed um, somebody with some income so that he could use that income to essentially um, to buy properties with. So you know, obviously, if you're buying a property, bank will look for cash, and they'll look for some sort of backing in terms of income to make sure that you can pay the mortgage. So what, what I, I provided the money and the backing. He did all the work. Um, and what we did is he bought a property, he refurbished it, then re, re, restructured it, the finance on it, and then we bought another. And so we bought 20 properties between us over a three or four year period. And this is this is while I was still working. Um, and we sat on those properties for a period of about 10 years, and then we split the portfolio and we sold them. And I think they something like double or quadruple the value um, over that period of time. So that that was a great investment for me. And he, Mike, Mike was doing lots of other things, and I suppose you could say that he was a bit of an inspiration for me in um, in making the decision to start my own property development company. Now, what I what I do is quite different to what Mike um, is doing, but it's just a, <laughs> we all we all have different approaches to things, and obviously the UK is quite a different market to New Zealand. The th- things work differently there to the way that they work here. Um, but I think for me. At the point that I started, I decided deliberately to start doing relatively small things. I bought um, a, uh, a property that consisted of, of a big house and a big shop. I split the house up into two houses. I split the shop up into two shops. There was a plot at the back. I got planning on the plot at the back. And then I just sold all of the individual components off. Um, that's the first sort of major project that I did when I when I started property development in 2002. I didn't. Actually, make I wouldn't if I hadn't got planning on the plot at the back, I wouldn't have made a lot of money on it. Would have made next to nothing. Um, but what I did do is uh, I I learned a lot from it. I did get planning on the plot at the back, and that really was profit that I made on the deal. It was about a hundred thousand pounds. And so, having built up a bit of equity from the previous things that I've been doing, I then took that and put it into other projects. So the next project I did was a new build of um, eleven houses in a place called Colford in Gloucestershire. Um, I did that as a joint venture with a local builder because I suppose at that time, although I had a bit of experience, I, I was conscious that I didn't have the, the degree of building knowledge that I needed to um, do that size of project. Made plenty of mistakes on that, but we got it finished. We got it sold. Um, again, we didn't like, we didn't make a lot of money on it. We made a bit of money on it. But what it did do, what I what I had been able to do, Bob, when I got to that point, is establish a track record, and I then started to do property development deals. Which actually really worked. So, um, you know, I I guess I, I'm somebody who likes to just to, to get on and do things, and I I learn from my mistakes. I don't always get it right, but um, I think what that did do is it gave me a platform to do some bigger and better things. And so I I then uh, I bought a, a couple of buildings in a in another town in Gloucestershire, a place called Cinderford. Um, I ended up converting those to around about 13 flats, did a new build of four houses on the back, sold the houses off, um, restructured the finance on the flats and kept them. So I put those into an investment property portfolio. I did the conversion of a bakery into seven um, flats and a new build of three houses plus refurbishment of some, some surrounding properties. I then I did a, I did a um, bought a property in London, former commercial premises, converted that into three flats in Fulham in London. Um, and then I, I also bought a property in Gloucester Docks, a place called the Lock Warehouse. Um, so it's a grade two listed Victorian former grain warehouse. Um, converted that into um, 26 flats with 3,000 square feet of commercial space on the ground floor. Um, so I actually bought that building 
in 2006, got planning on it in 2007, sat on it through the global financial crisis and then, and then built it out and finished the, um, the development in 2013. So that, that's, that was the sort of journey up, up until that point. Um, we, we now have uh, a 19-unit site in Gloucester, which is uh, um, 12 new build units and a conversion of a former school building into seven flats. We've got a 10-unit built to rent scheme in a place that's in Cinderford in Gloucestershire. So that's just some existing properties that we own that there was an opportunity to, to buy one next door and and, um, and develop. Um, we've just completed a six-unit scheme in, in a place called Hive in Kent on the south coast. Um, uh, quite quite an upmarket coastal town, um, very nice modern design by an architect called Guy Holloway. So we we have this philosophy that we call design and development that I talked about when um, we're at the Partners of Property event, and I think that that project in Hyde is a is a good example of that design and approach. We look to add value through contemporary design, um, taking the same sort of approach at the, the um, project that we're doing in um, in Gloucester, and we just exchanged contracts yesterday on a, a site in Kennington, in SW9. So that is uh, 20,000 square feet of commercial space with consent for 32 residential units above that. Um, and that's a pretty big deal for us. So we've done that as a joint venture with a private equity fund. So I think we're, what, what we tend to do is we build a platform in terms of experience and capability. And then we look to sort of, to, to then take the business on very quickly and, and build our, our experience and portfolio on top of that. And so that, that Kennington site is, it's a big step for us, but it's a, it's something we're, we're, we're really comfortable with and very happy with. Wow. That's, that's so fascinating listening to everything you've done and, and seeing the progression that, you know, it, it is a progression going from, for me, what you, you know, your first development sites were big and then now I'm hearing the Kennington one, I'm like, oh, that's even bigger. So that's, that's incredible. And, and so, you know, on this journey from your first sort of development site to where you are now, how have you been, I mean, because you, you can get investors, you can, um, sorry, you can get, you know, development finance and various institutional money, but how have you been financing the other aspects which you have to pay for kind of especially at the start and now is it investors is it your own cash or hmm. so now we do work with investors um and i think we we changed our business model sort of changed our business model i think we, we realized that in order to grow beyond the point we'd reached we needed to start working with investors and we needed to start working in joint ventures with 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 others um because there was a limit to, to what we were going to be able to do on our own i guess we 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 started doing that really in 2017. Um, but going back to your original question, when I originally started, I, I started with my own money. I had some cash that I built up through um, properties that I'd bought and sold. Um, and also, as I said, when I came out of this startup, I had a, a little bit of money, not a huge amount, but um, you know, I, at that point, I guess I had a few hundred thousand pounds that I could put into the business. Um, one of the deliberate strategies from the outset was not just to do development, because development is a very cash-intensive business, but also to build up an investment por property portfolio. So we have, a prop uh, we have an investment property portfolio of about 50 residential and commercial properties. But the point about that is that it gives us a consistent stream of income. And so when the global financial crisis hit, um, we wouldn't be able to do development for a period of time. And so that provided a stream of income that we could rely on while um, – the you know while we were unable to pursue our core business which is which is development and i guess there was also the additional bonus that interest rates drop pretty 
substantially during that period of time. And so we found that our debt servicing obligations were significantly reduced. And so um, that, that rental income actually got better, better and better over that period of time. Um, I mean, I'm, I, I don't want to give you the illusion that that was a, an easy period of time for us. It certainly wasn't. But um, having that rental property portfolio as a buffer against um, against the ups and downs of the market was certainly a um, you know a, a big help in, in getting through that period of time. Yeah. Okay. Mm. And then I also know when you spoke, and also I saw on your website something about crowdfunding. So <clears> it'd be good if you talk a little bit about. So I think everyone listening knows what it is kind of the debt and equity different types you get but it'd be good to maybe talk about your experience with it and what it funded because a lot of people always ask you know how can we use crowdfunding for our deals yeah now so for me the thing that's interesting is equity crowdfunding um i'm not too interested in 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 debt funding for property development finance and the reason for that is i don't have any trouble in raising senior debt or mezzanine finance from traditional lenders and the level at or, or the, the rates at which I can raise it are, are competitive. So from my perspective, that's a very competitive market and there's no real reason for me to want to to crowdfund it. It doesn't really make any difference to me where the lender gets their money from, if that makes sense to you. Um, but, but equity is a little bit different because um, equity has traditionally been the domain of family offices and private equity funds, and they tend to have a min- minimum investment amount um, which is usually, at, say, a million or two million, because um, if they're not deploying that amount of money, um, then it's just not worth their while doing it. They need it, there's, there's as much administration involved as a, in a smaller deal as a bigger one, and so um, they really they want to be de- deploying r- large lumps of money, relatively large lumps of money at a time. Um, what crowdfunding does in terms of equity is it is it democratizes that um, marketplace to some extent. So. It gives small investors access to the the returns that are offered by large-scale property development projects, but it also gives developers access to a community of investors. So, um, and it, it changes the balance of power actually in some ways in, in in that relationship. So, whereas if you work with a private equity investor or an investor who's putting all the money into a deal. Um, they can pretty much dictate terms to you. They'll say, we're prepared to invest on these terms, and if you don't like those terms, you can take it or leave it. Um, that, that is the way most large investors work. Um, with crowdfunding, it's a little bit different. What you do is you put an offer together, and obviously we tune the offers to make them as attractive to investors as possible, but um, it's then up to the investor just to, to, to decide whether they like the offer or not. Now, obviously, if the offer's not attractive, investors are not going to invest in it, but you're offering it out to a community community of investors, and if if the deals are attractive and the investors know, like, and trust you, they know they know what you're doing, and they're confident um, in where their money is going as an investment, then then they'll choose to invest. And so you end up in a situation where it's a win-win for investors and developers in the sense that investors get access to those opportunities, but developers also get to raise money on 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 the terms that they're looking to raise money on. Um, so you know, as long as those terms are actually attractive enough to to, um, to bring investors into the deal. So, from my perspective, crowdfunding is um, equity crowdfunding is a is a game changer in terms of the way in which it enables um, property developers to raise equity for their projects. And so, we we did our first crowdfund on 
a project, an, a, um, a property development project in um, late 2017. That was the, uh, the one that I referred to earlier, the um, development of six flats in Hyde and Kent. We raised, we raised £200,000 on, on that. Um, and we actually thought before we did that raise that um, it would just go very quickly because we, I think the offer, the offer was attractive, but I think what we didn't, we, what we hadn't understood at that time was the way that offers need to be structured to be um, easy to, as easy to understand and as attractive to investors as possible. So it took us um, seven, seven weeks to raise that £200,000, and we raised 80% of it from people that we knew already. And so on the basis that we had an ambition to be able to raise significant millions of pounds, we realised that wasn't going to work as a model for us. So we went back to the drawing board and we had a good think about how that worked and how we could do it better. We then raised another, we then launched another equity investment in July um, 2018. Uh, we we um, It was actually a smaller raise. We raised £130,000 on um, this, this built-to-rent development that we're doing in, in Cinderford in Gloucestershire. Um, we raised, we, we launched at 4 p.m. on a Tuesday and by 10 o'clock the following morning, we had um, over £200,000 committed. So um, that one went very quickly. So we, essentially, we raised, we raised that £130,000 in, in 18 hours. And in fact, by the time we, we, we closed it, because it takes a little while for money to get across to the platform, um, we had about £1.5 million wanting to go to that deal. So, so we thought, OK, <laughs> we've, we've worked out how to make this work. Um, so we, we then launched another one in November last year. We raised £1.18 million on our site in Gloucester. Um, and again, that was a pretty significant milestone for us. We wanted to be able to prove that we could raise those sorts of sums of money. Um, and, and we did, we raised that in three weeks. Um, we're actually just on Monday, we're launching a, a, a bond, something called the Melt Bond, which is um, essentially a fund for people who want to invest money in our future equity investment offers and they, they want somewhere to park it. Um, before moving it into a deal. So it's, it's a convertible bond. Essentially, people put money into it. They'll be offered priority access to our um, future equity investment offers. And so we're launching that on Monday. It's a £500,000 raise. We've got over £400,000 of pledges for it already. So I think we're quite confident it'll go quickly. Um, we've got um, a plan to do another raise in the next three or four months of about £4.5 So we're... we're um, I guess using starting to use equity and crowdfunding in particular as um, a way to to scale up our business. Wow! So you know, we we look at the level that you're at in property, and I think it's quite you know it's a lot further ahead than I guess a lot of people I know, and I know a lot of people want to get to where you are. So, and I actually saw a blog on this on your website. If you had to, I don't know, narrow it down to let's say three things or three kind of steps. How can someone become a property developer and get to where you are? I think probably the first and most important thing, and this is maybe something a lot of people thought of here, but patience. Um, I've been doing it for 17 years. And so when you've been doing something for 17 years, you get to understand it. Um, I think you're never going to be successful as a property developer unless you really enjoy and love what you do. So I don't do everything in property and some things just don't excite me. But what I do, what does really excite me and what gets me, what really motivates me in terms of property 
is taking a property or a site, you know, a, particularly a dilapidated building, something as run down or horrible looking as possible, and then running that project, getting the planning consent, um, sorting out the contractor, sorting out the design, and then seeing that thing being built and actually changing the area in which it's built. To me, that, that process, it leaves a mark on the world. You know, you've, you've made a positive change to the, the place where that thing has been built. And I can't explain what that thing is called, but I have this enormous intangible sense of satisfaction that that gives me when I, when I see something that, that we've, that's been delivered or built because of what I've done. It just makes me very proud. And so I think patience is the first thing. You're not, you're not going to get to a huge scale overnight or if, if you do it might be a little dangerous because you might find that that you could fall into some some traps i mean one thing that's worth bearing in mind is that you can just as easy easily lose a lot of money on a project as make a lot of money so if you want to do a 20 million pound project and you think that there's five million pounds of profit in it well that's well and good but if you get it wrong you could just as easily lose five million pounds and yeah so i think i think being patient making sure that you're taking stuff on that you, you have the capability to do and just making sure that um, you do your, your, your due, due diligence, that you have people around you that you can rely on to deal with the things that you don't know how to do. So recognize your limits, you know, be self-aware. I think, I think patience, um, self-awareness and, um, just making sure that whatever you're doing is what is what you really, really want to do. Because I can tell you that somebody who isn't who's only do, who's only doing it for the money is never going to be as motivated as somebody who's doing it because they just want to do it. And I suppose in a way, the reason that I do property and, and, and maybe the reason that I've been able to build my company up to the point that I have is because I just love what I do. And so it's, it doesn't seem like a job to me. I, I, I just do it because I love doing it. Absolutely. Great tips. And then that kind of leads me quite nicely when you when you speak about loving what you're, you're doing and your passion to your design led approach. Now, when I so I'm at the stage where I'm buying, you know, buy to let and, you know, we look at the street for comparables. There's always a ceiling price. There's always, you know, a house with white walls, gray skirting boards. Nice, you know, that has achieved sort of the maximum. And, you know, whatever it seems when you look at these things, you think, OK, well, you know, let's say 100K on this street, that's the max that houses are going for. You know, there's no point in me putting in all this effort, Swarovski crystals in the lights to try and get it to be worth 120K because, well, there's a ceiling. But when it comes to the properties you've designed and developed, like, talk me through your kind of design-led approach and also, I guess, your thoughts on this ceiling and, and maybe when you've broken it before. Yeah, um, so I think probably the best way to, to sort of start off an answer to this is you can't do everything everywhere. Um, and what I mean when I say that is in a particular town or area, every property market has its ceiling. So if you, if you want to go to, um, you know, I don't know, some small town up north <laughs> um, and you, you want to build high-end apartments which have the specification that, that that you might have in a in a um an apartment in Chelsea there's not going to be a market for that so um I think you have to match what you're doing to 
the location that you're doing it in. And so if, if, the, if the price ceiling in a particular area is 300 pounds a square foot, then you might be able to push that up to 330 or 350 by, with, by, by pushing things on the design front. You might even be able to push it up to 400, but there's a limit to what people will pay for a property in a particular area. If a detached house in Gloucester is, um, you know, if the, if the most expensive detached house in, in Gloucester that, that, that's ever sold was, say, £600,000, it's not, but just as an example, then you, mo- you might get 700 you might get 800 but you're never going to sell a house like that for £1.5 million because there's, the, the market just won't allow you to. So I think what we do with design and development is we look to um, focus on design to, to deliver better value for money in the location that we're developing. And so we, we break the price selling. We don't, we don't break it by doubling the, the price of the property. We, we break it by maybe 10% or 20%. Um, and we do that by focusing on inspired contemporary design. Contemporary design, just because, just because I love contemporary design, but you, know, you, you can't afford to do contemporary design everywhere. And you know, if you're taking houses, for example, and refurbishing them, Sure, you can you can do contemporary design internally, but you probably can't afford to you know I don't know redesign the outside or, or reclad the outside in order to make the thing look different because it's just not um, commercially viable to do so. Um, so I suppose one of the things that you end up doing in property sometimes is you sometimes end up doing stuff that maybe isn't that interesting, um, but it, but you can make money out of it. And I think it's a real privilege to be able to do projects where you're working with a beautiful building or you have the opportunity to design from scratch in a relatively upmarket area. Not every project can be like that. Every project has its limitations and there there are design constraints that will be put on you by planning. There are design constraints that are related to cost. Um, and so you can't always do what you want to do on, on, on every project. I think a, a good example of this is the lock warehouse in, in Gloucester Docks. We it's, it, I mean, doing that project was a was a great privilege. It's a it's a, a mid eighteenth century um, building that that um, has a huge wealth of history. And so, when you convert a building like that, you find all sorts of interesting things. When we took the windows out, we found a, a piece of newspaper that was about a hundred hundred years old and some sort of grain in the windows. And so, you think that's been there for a long time. I mean, it's a, and it's a fascinating building. The historical features are amazing, but that that's a grade two listed building. And so. What you're able to do in terms of contemporary design on something like that is limited. We we actually were thinking about putting a, a glass enclosed lift on the outside, and we would have, but getting the original planning consent was potentially contentious, and so we originally put in a relatively conservative application. We did we just didn't have time to get another application through before we were at the point where we had to start development on it. And so I think sometimes sometimes in development you have to make compromises. You can't always um, achieve exactly what it is that you would would in an ideal world want or like, and so I guess what I'm always doing with my projects is trying to find stuff which is as interesting as possible. But you have to start thinking about it at a really early early stage, and and you've always got to make compromises. You can't always just do what you want. You need to think about what it is that the market is 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 going to accept, and how far you can just push above the um, you know, the established price points in a particular location. Okay, awesome. And, you know, it'd be really good to talk through, you know, is there a particular deal where you could, like, talk us through the figures of it and the times? Because uh, 
I think development, at least to maybe people who haven't done it before, it is something that can take quite a while and there might be a big chunk of money at the end as opposed to, you know, a HMO where it takes a few months and there's kind of passive income every month. Does a particular deal spring to mind that you could talk us through? Yeah, um, it's quite a few. Um, but, um, I mean, it's true that, that development is a, is a very capital-intensive business. Um, I think one of the reasons that we raise equity on our projects is to make it less capital intensive. If you can bring investors in at the right time in the development cycle, you can put yourself in a position where you've got cash available to then put into other developments. So um, perhaps a reasonable example of of something that we've done um, fairly recently would be um, our development in Gloucester Lime Grove. So we, we originally bought that site in um, 2016, I think, um, we bought it from the county council. Had, had an outline consent for 10 new build flats and the conversion of the former school building into um, two large semi-detached units. One of the things that we do when we buy a site is we always look at the, the potential it has for enhancement via planning consent or by, by extending the planning consent or by tweaking the planning consent. And so with this site, we saw immediately that the the, the, the planning consent it had on it, which was an outline planning consent, was not particularly well optimised. Um, the it envisaged something, something like twelve and a half thousand square feet of space. Now, if you think about it, twelve houses at twelve and a half thousand square feet—that's about a thousand square feet a house. They're pretty small houses. That's that's you know maybe three beds at the most. Um, in fact, the two units in the school building were, were three thousand square feet each. So it didn't really leave a lot not left over for the other ones. So it was pretty obvious to me that, that that planning consent was going to end up with a lot more space in it. So the first thing that we did is we put a, a reserve matters application in. That's an application you put in to convert an outline consent into a detailed consent that you can actually build. And we ended up on that outline consent with um, 18,500 square feet. Um, and so it, that by we, we paid £725,000 for the site. That, that outline consent that we gained actually valued the site at 1.1 million. So we ended up with pretty significant planning gain as a, as a result of that. Um, we then put an application in to convert the school building into seven flats. Um, and we put another application in to get two additional houses on a, on a piece of land, um, which didn't have a lot of, well, it was sort of set, it was set as open space. Um, but the, the reason for that there was, was that there was a TPO protected tree, um, uh, on part of it and so if, if you've ever developed on a site where you've got TPO protected trees um, you would know that they're quite difficult to develop near this they have things called root protection areas so if you look at a tree um, if you look at the crown of the tree the, the roots actually extend to something like twice the area of the crown of the tree that's called a root protection area if you damage the roots then you can kill the tree and if a tree is protected um, it's a bit like demolishing a grade two listed building, you can be fined or go to jail for doing that. And so you can't mess around with TPO protected trees and you can't damage their roots. Um, so um, what we actually ended up getting the Gang Council to agree to do is to allow us to remove that tree in exchange for a financial contribution towards tree planting elsewhere in, in the um, in the borough. And um, so we ended up getting two additional houses on that piece of land as well. 
So it's a bit of a win-win for us in the council. They got they got some money for tree planting elsewhere. Um, we got to build a couple of additional houses, and obviously, um, you know, uh, more more um, more houses locally is obviously a good thing from the planning authority's point of view. Although you wouldn't think of it, <laughs> 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 the, the, the planning authorities think think that way from the way that a lot of them act. But yeah. um, gave us a, a bit of a further tweak to to the value of the site. Wow. And um, so. Once we had those planning consents in place, um, in parallel, we'd been working with a contractor to get them ready to start works on site. And once we got to the point where we were ready to start works on site, at that point, we'd built up some equity in the scheme. We'd obviously put some of our own money in. Um, so we'd built up some equity through the planning consents, but we'd also put in some of our, some of our own money to, to buy the thing in the first place. Uh, once we got to the point where we were ready to start development and so that we could offer investors fairly um, – accurate idea of how long it would be before the development was completed and sold at that point we crowdfunded um, equity into the development so in essence what we were able to do is take our own equity out we, we, all, we always leave some money in because we, we we don't believe that we should ask investors to put money in if, if we're not if we don't have our own money in the project ourselves um, so we raised investment um, just before we started work on site and um, that works quite well for investors because we can be quite clear with them about how long the project is likely to take to build out. They're not then exposed to those um, planning-related uncertainties. But to go to go back to your original question about timing, I think I don't think I've ever done a development project which has taken less than two years, um, and they normally take longer than that. I think the bigger the project, the longer they take. Um, the, the development we did at the Lockway House in Gloucester Docks. Um, we started that in 2006 and we, we finished it in 2013. We still have um, a couple of flats and the Grandfield commercial premises there. So, um, you know, if you just look at the development phase, that was seven years. <laughs> wow. Okay, well, there, was a, there was a global financial crisis in the middle of that, but still. Yeah, a, just that little a, thing in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, so I, I mean, property is a long term business. Development is a long term game. You, you, you can't expect. So, I talked about patience earlier. You can't expect to just buy something. And turn it over and make a lot of money quickly. You might do if you're lucky, but you should certainly never go into anything relying on that. Yeah, and then you know, going back to the um, the one in Gloucester. So once that was, so it, that's not built yet, is it, or has it been built yet? So we've started on site. We've put the drainage and the road in, and we're just in the process of putting the foundations for the first sets of plots in, and the timber frames will be going up in the next month or so. Okay, and what do you think that, or what do you know the end of GDB is going to be once they're built? Um, so we start, interestingly, we started off with a scheme that had a projected GDV of about three and a half million. Um, we've now got a GDV, projected GDV of about seven million. So you've doubled it because of how you altered the use of space, essentially? Basically, yeah. I mean, we started with 12,500 square feet. We've got 25,000 square feet. So essentially, I guess we've We've doubled the square footage and we've increased the value of, of, of the end values of the properties accordingly. I mean, that's that's I think that highlights two things. Obviously, with your experience, you personally can look at a plan and say, hold on a minute. You know, we can make this work better. But for people who haven't got that experience, you know, if you have a good planner, a good architect, whoever it is in your team, you know, make sure they're good enough to make you an extra three and a half million is i guess is the summary of that story right because well, well, yeah, look I, it, I think it's funny 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 thing about it is it's a it's a creative exercise but you have to take on an an analytical approach at the back end so i can look at sites 
and I can see very quickly where opportunities are. But that's just because I've looked at lots of sites and I can look at different types of sites. I can look at city centre sites on which you take a different approach. With city centre sites, it might be about optimising flat sizes and getting additional stories or somehow getting additional floor space into, into whatever that thing is. With something out in which is more rural, it might be about getting additional plots or getting larger houses or something like that. But and, and actually, sometimes there are sweet spots. It isn't a question necessarily of getting bigger houses all the time because um, as properties get bigger, the per square foot returns tend to go down. Um, I say tend to because it, it, not, it, not every area is the same. And I talked earlier about understanding the market and the location that you're developing and different markets work, work differently. So, you know, there are some rules that work for, for, for most places, but, but there, then, then there are always exceptions. So, but, but what I am quite good at doing is, is I'm good at seeing a site and being able to see where the opportunities lie quickly. And the more stuff you look at, the, the quicker you'll be able to do that. Um, but certainly understanding how the planning system works in the, in the local, in the area that you're developing in is, is a big plus. Having a good architect, um, having a good planning consultant. Um, and I think the bigger the project, the, the more important that stuff is. But yeah, planning is a, is a big thing and just, just understanding how you can extract the maximum value from a planning consent. Well, I guess if you can make money out of a, a project before you even put a spade in the ground, then um, that's that's obviously a lot less work than than you know um, all the blood, sweat, and tears of, of um, taking twelve months managing a contract on site, getting everything finished and, and built out. I mean, the two things go together. I think it, I for me, we always want to be doing some development. Um, I don't think we doing development puts you in a place where um, people see what you're doing and they understand what you're doing. If, you, if we were just buying sites and turning them over, I don't think we'd, we'd, we'd have the same level of profile or visibility as if we were doing development. And I think you can't really understand the whole process and, unless you've done done them from cradle to grave. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, and then just quickly to go back to that example, what what are your... So you bought it for 725000 right? Your What are your sort of costs finance cost build cost etc everything yeah so um our net bill costs will be about 3.8 million i think um i think that's yeah and obviously we've got finance costs on the way through i don't have the appraisal in front of me but i think ultimately um <clears throat> there's probably um uh around about 20 percent profit or so on that seven million, um, and then there's a little bit more on the planning gain. So I suppose um, it's going to be about two million or something like that. Okay, and and you know, for people listening, that you know, for some of them that might be everyday business like you, but for some people it might be you know, sort of wow, that's that's incredible. How it's, it's, it's not you know, I, I wouldn't say that's everyday business. You know, I, I don't have ten sites like that. It's a you know, it's a nice project and. But it's also worth saying that project project like that isn't risk free. You know, we could have bought it and found that we weren't able to secure the planning consents. It hasn't been easy. It isn't like we just bought it and it all dropped into place. It's taken us a year to get those two final planning enhancements. Obviously, there's been some holding costs in in that period. So I wouldn't say it's gone like a dream. Um, I don't think I've ever had a project that's gone like a dream. Every project has its own challenges. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, ultimately it will be a good and profitable project for us, but it's been bloody hard work. Um, and, and, you know, I, I would not, I would, 
at, at this stage, we don't have the scale to do 10 projects like that. You know, I'm scaling up a team behind the developments that we're doing, um, but there's a limit to the speed at which you can grow. And I think we, we have, have tried to grow at a sensible speed, um, not take too much on too quickly, and just make sure that whatever we do take on, we've got the appropriate expertise and the appropriate people to help us um, to help us do it. Planning and preparation is key. Um, I think you probably heard me say that in my, in my presentation, but I think property development is such a long-term game that you really need to be prepared. You need to do everything that you can do before you start work on site, because if you end up having to deal with, with urgent issues that you could have dealt with before you before you um, start up work on site, if you end up having to deal with those things during the course of them, you just won't have time. So you really have to work hard on just planning planning things to a T before you even start. Yeah. No, it's good. I think it's good you mentioned that because, you know, again, a lot of um, maybe education out there or, you know, even just social media will show you the kind of end result, the glossy CGI pictures. It won't show you the, the grey hairs and the stress and the wrinkles of, of yeah. dealing with planning, which, you know, you think is some you know paper designs you think it'd be you know we're facing a crisis of homes like you said you think it'd be easier for this stuff to happen but it took you a year and you're holding something that cost you know 700 grand to buy like you said there's holding costs there's stress there's what if it was contaminated you know anything um so it's good you mentioned that well no i mean so one of the things that we do do before we buy a site is we make sure that any major issues are dealt with before we um before we commit to the purchase so i say commit to the purchase i guess i mean exchange contracts so actually on this side there were two planning conditions that concerned us or one one in particular that concerned us one was an archaeological condition basically said we had to do an archaeological survey and if there are any remains found under, under the site then we we would have to then get the county archaeologists involved now clearly if a roman villa had been buried under the site would have been a pretty big problem. We wouldn't have been able to develop the thing out. And so we actually did their, their archaeological survey before we exchanged contracts. And that cost us some money. It cost us about £7,000, I think. But I would far rather spend that money before exchanging contracts than end up in a situation where I buy a site and that I can't develop out. So I think I think you you know that you might see spending that money as risky, but I think it's far less risky than actually just buying the site and not spending the money. So... Um, and the other thing that we did when we did that is we did a geotechnical investigation. So we did a, 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 ground, a ground survey and that confirmed. We, we knew the land wasn't contaminated, but, it, but, it, but it obviously it, it helped with that. But the, the main reason for doing it was just to confirm that we could put standard foundations in and we weren't going to have any excessive costs in that respect. So, um, you know, I talked about experience earlier and we, we talked about design and development. We have something else that we call rigorous risk management. And that, that really is about making sure that we dot the I's and cross the T's in terms of any risks that might exist on a site before we proceed with the acquisition. Um, so, yeah, it, it is a, there's a lot of hard work that goes in behind it. Um, and I suppose just going back to the point that you were making earlier, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a 17-year overnight success. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, people, people may not have heard of me before you know, they, they hear this podcast, but, um, it, you know, and so to some people it may seem that I've just, Popped up out of the blue. Um, yeah, I haven't. I've, I, I started in 2002. I've done a lot of things. It's been a lot of hard work. And so I think, you know, I'm not saying that, that, that somebody else might not be able to get to where I am quicker. Maybe they, maybe they could, but, 
um, I've done it in a way that works for me. Yeah, absolutely. And if if you had to say, you know, if I asked you what is one thing that property has given you or allowed you to do, what would you say that is? It's given me a degree of freedom, I, I guess. And I, I say a degree of freedom because um, I, don't, I don't think there's anything – I don't think there's ever true freedom in life. You've always got some form of master. Um, if you've got your own business – you're going to be responsible to the bank manager or to the lender or to your investor. Um, You're you're responsible to your employees as well. Um, I think if you're in charge, you have a lot of responsibility. Um, But I guess if you're in charge of a business, you do have autonomy and you do have the ability to make decisions. You've then got the responsibility for dealing with the consequences of those decisions as well. So, I think with autonomy comes responsibility and I, I do enjoy running my own business I do do enjoy what I do um, but I it, it's a it's a and so that freedom is something that um, is very valuable to me but I think the other thing that's really valuable is I just love doing projects and I said that I said this earlier on the podcast being able to stand back and look at that thing and say I was responsible for that I get I get this great sense of satisfaction from that mm. Okay. And, you know, for people who are getting into property development or want to, what are maybe some of the challenges? Because I know we've touched on some of them before, but what are some of the challenges that they should be wary of or expect to happen? I think if you're starting off in property development, um, it is, you, it's very easy to think that you just buy a site you get a builder in to do some work on it, and then you sell the properties and you make a lot of money. Um, I mean, that's the basic process. But there's an enormous amount of regulation and um, just stuff that comes up that you just you didn't even know you would end up having to deal with. And so I would say to anyone who's thinking of getting involved in property development, team up with somebody who's more experienced. Um, there's a there's also these days there's a lot of information on the internet about property development. I mean, I've, I have a YouTube channel. It's called The Main Thing. That is about providing value to people about how to do um, property development. I also do a, um, a show on property TV called Property Developers Question Time. Again, that's a sort of a Q&A that I do with different developers. Um, and that's it's really about how to do um, property de- different aspects of property development. There's a few of those episodes of Property Developers Question Time on my YouTube channel. Um, if you just Google me or Google the main thing, you should find it. Um, or just go to my website, which is maindonald.com, and you'll, you'll, you'll find it. But um, there's a, there, there are also a lot of Facebook groups out there which are focused on property development. There are people that you can ask. But I would just say be careful and don't just assume that because something is for sale and it looks like whatever can be built on it might be worth a certain amount of money, that you can make money out of it. Um, it's not about what the end value is. About, it's about what it costs you to actually build that. And if you don't fully understand what's involved in getting from whatever you've got to whatever the consent allows for, then you can easily get caught. Um, the fact is that most sites that are on the market, it's not possible to make money out of because vendors always want more for their property than it's worth. And I guess part of the job in finding sites is to find something which is maybe not priced the way that it should be or where there's, a, there's an opportunity that somebody else hasn't seen. Um, but, you know, I would say um, think slowly, <laughs> just make sure, don't be rushed into anything. 
Um, but when you find something and you, you know that it's the right thing, then jump on it quickly. Great. And you mentioned your YouTube channel there and the, the property TV. So that's obviously all like content, right? Which is helping people. What, um, what kind of, and I think you were speaking about zero moment of truth as well in that presentation, which you can kind of jump into if you want as well. What, sure, sure. You know, why, why do you think it's important? And I guess also why do you, you know, create content? Why do you post things, write blogs? Like what's the, I don't know, the value of it? Um, I think, if we, you think about why um, people pay attention to other people. So I think about celebrities, think about people that you, um, I don't know, whose programs you watch on TV. So you know, why do people buy Beyonce's albums? Um, it's because she entertains them. You know, why do people watch Grand Designs? It's because Kevin McLeod provides um, some education about property and people are interested in property, but it's also a form of entertainment. And so those people have profiles because people are interested in what they do. And those profiles are valuable. You know, we don't, you know, celebrities have, I guess you could call a personal brand. People pay attention to what they have to say and what they do because of, because of that brand. But they also get opportunities that come to them that wouldn't come to other people because they have that profile. And, and they do that because they, they offer value to people in the form of education or entertainment. And for me, it's as simple as that. Um, I'm happy to let, tell people what I know and offer education and, and entertainment because it means that they pay attention to me. And if people pay attention to me, then that's brand. Um, if, if you go buy, out and buy a, um, you know, a pair of running shoes, you're more likely to buy Nikes than you are to buy some brand you've never heard of. That's because Nike has a brand. So that brand, which is attention, translates into value. Nike sell shoes because people know who they are. And so I'm not saying I want to sell shoes, but um, the point is that if I, for example, crowdfund for a um, property development project, if people know who I am, um, if people have, have heard of me because I have a strong personal brand, then it's going to make raising that investment easier. Um, people will approach me with development deals if they know what I do. Um, I get opportunities for um, joint ventures and projects. People approach me because they understand what my business is doing and there might be something that they think that they can help me with. So I suppose that that brand and that profile, it brings you opportunities that might not otherwise come to you. And, and that's why I do it. Hmm. Very, very interesting. And I, I can think... talk about zero moment of truth, but, but that's, that's probably a, a simpler and more straightforward explanation. Go on, t tell everyone what that is, because I think that relates really nicely to what we said about brand but also what a lot of investors want is to, to find investors who will jv with them or loan them angel money and i think the zero moment of truth relates to that well so go on yeah no so zero zero, zero moment of truth is really about understanding the investor mindset and so um when investors are looking to invest in a development project they are um they, they really they want to know four things they want to know um they want to know what the return is and they want to know um, when they're going to get their money back. But the things that are more important than that, the things that they really need to know before you even get to the point of having that conversation about what the return is and how long the project's going to take is they want to know what the security is and, and they want to, they want to make sure that they're going to get their money back. And so it's vitally important that investors have the confidence in who you are. In other words, they can get to know, like, and trust you 
before they'll be prepared to in, invest in your project. And so um, Zero Moment of Truth is a piece of research that Google did on um, uh, how people buy online. And it's based on a, um, a model that was developed originally by Procter & Gamble um, for how people buy in retail outlets. So essentially the way that that model works is people have some form of stimulus. So they might be walking past a shop window, they'll see a display, they might see an ad on TV, um, they might see an ad in a magazine, they see a thing, and they say, okay, I want to buy that thing. And what, the, what people used to do is they used to go to the shop, have a conversation with a salesperson, and then they would normally end up buying that thing from the salesperson they spoke to. And Procter & Gamble called that point at which that person made a, a purchase decision, the first moment of truth. They then called that, that person then went home and used that thing and had, had a good experience or a bad experience with it. That and they would then talk about that to our friends. Procter and Gamble call that the second moment of truth, and that sort of cycle of um, buying something, hopefully having a good experience with it, and then that being reinforced by people telling their friends was a sort of a, a model for understanding how how consumers bought. So obviously we now live in a digital age, and that's quite different. And people buy buy things differently in in the digital age. So the research that Google did was on how people buy now over the internet. So now what people do when they buy things is they don't they don't generally actually necessarily buy it from the place that they see it advertised. When they realize that they want something, what they, what, what they do is they go to the Internet and they start researching. And the research that Google did was about what people need to get to the point where they make a purchase decision over the Internet. And they called that point zero moment of truth. And what they found is that people on average needed to do seven hours of research over 11 touch points and four locations to get to the point where they were ready to, re to, to make a purchase decision. So seven hours, I think, is fairly obvious. They needed to consume seven hours of content, but that needed to be across 11 different touch points, and a touch point could be a blog post, it could be a news article, it could be somebody else's review, it could be a YouTube video, um, or it, it could be a conversation with somebody, or it could be seeing somebody speak in a physical physical location. And that needed to be across four different locations. So a location could be, say, a physical location like a shop. It could be a website. It could be social media. It could be YouTube. So um, the point is that um, in order to and, – and, and Google also did this, this research for investment. So investment is, is essentially a purchase decision. It's somebody making a decision to spend some money on something with the expectation of getting something in return. That The thing that they get in return is a return on their money. And so if you understand that in order for people to get to the point where they're ready to make that purchase decision, they need to go through those seven hours of research across those 11 touch points in four locations, then it becomes obvious that, in fact, what you need to do is you need to ensure that you have enough content about you available on the Internet so that people can go through and do that seven hours of research across those four different touch points. So you need to, sorry, across those four different locations. So you have to be available on those four locations. You need a website, you need to be available on social media. It obviously helps the more locations people can go to to get information about you. So obviously reviews are, are a positive thing and you need those 11 touch points that people can get to. Now obviously different people um, do this differently and, and what people looked at was 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 were, were averages. Some people need to do more research, some people need to do less. But it was it's quite interesting that it in that it actually focused in some very specific sweet spots in terms of in terms of the point that people needed to get to in terms of consuming that content to to get to know, like and trust somebody before they were ready to invest. Yeah. 
Very mm. interesting. And also, obviously, it's backed by Google, who do produce some pretty awesome stuff. So I think we can... Yeah, well, I'm Google it. Zero element of truth. It's really interesting research. Yeah. Yeah. So everyone, you know, Google Google that further, um, funnily enough. Um, but again, that links to brand and that links to putting out content to find investors. You know, if you're silent, if you can still get investors, don't get me wrong, you know, face-to-face events, word of mouth, kind of old school way. But if you're on social media, if you're, if you have a brand, like, like Evan said, you're going to get the attention and you're going to get people saying, Hey, I kind of seen what you do. I kind of trust it. I like it. Let's, let's talk. Um, Evan, this brings us to the last part of the show, which is the quick fire round. Sure. So I might put you on the spot with some of these. Um, what are the three elements that someone's mindset has to have for them to be successful in in property in general? I think this probably extends beyond property into life. I think to be successful in life, you need to have a positive mindset. Um, I think you've got to be able to see opportunities and you've got to be able to see how to take advantage of those opportunities. Um, I think in property, you also need to have an analytical mindset. Um, so you need to be able to break things down and understand where the risks are. And I think you also need to be self-aware. You need to know where your limitations are. Um, I think if you jump into a, a property project, a big property project, and you don't know what you're get, getting into, or you don't fully understand what you're getting into, or you don't understand that there might be things that you don't know and you take advice, and, and, you, and, you, and sorry, and you don't take advice, then you could get, easily get yourself into trouble. So that self-awareness. Um, I think in property is vitally important. I think that the, the mindset of being able to see opportunities and, and actually also to be able to deal with things that might not always be positive or might not always go your way is extremely important. Um, I think running any company is a series of ups and downs and you need to have the ability to see through the things that happen on a particular day that might not go your way because actually you've got to be able to come back from that and, and see the opportunities again. Um, I do often with, with myself, you know, I, I, if I'm not in the right set, mindset and I'm not thinking the right way or I'm too tired, what I'll often do is I'll just go and I'll take a break and I'll do something else. I'll take my dogs out for a walk or just get away. If I realize that my mindset is becoming negative, if, if I'm aware that actually I'm not operating the way that I should be operating, I just stop doing it because I know that if I try and operate in that mindset, I'm not going to do a good job. And so, you know, I think that's critical. If you're going to be, um, you, if, you know, if you if you've got the wrong mindset, you can do you can do more harm than good. You can do more damage to yourself than than actually make progress if you just keep pushing yourself. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. And then, what are your top three tips for new people in property? Um, I, I think get one of the things that the internet allows you to do that you couldn't do when I started in property is it allows you to get a really good insight into what other people are doing. A lot of people put out content about what they're doing on their projects. And so I think if you're getting started in property, take a look at somebody who's doing the sort of thing you want to do and just try and get under the skin of it and understand how they do it. I mean, I, I often do this with other people that are doing things either in property or, or in other areas of business. I'll look at what they do and I'll try and disassemble it. So I look at what they're achieving and I say, how did they actually get to that? How do they achieve that? What are the steps that they took? And 
it won't necessarily be what they say because a lot of people don't actually understand necessarily why why um, or the steps that they're taking to get to the point that they are. They just know what they're doing and they know they know what it works. Um, but I think understanding um, the approach that somebody is taking that to, to get to the place that you want to be is a very powerful way of 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 um, getting started on that journey to, to to where you want to get to and so i think that's one thing i think another thing is um you know what one thing that's really interesting with, with sorry I've got the dog in the background <laughs> one thing that's really interesting with um with crowdfunding is that you can put a small amount of money into somebody else's project and if you put some money into somebody's project you're going to keep a bit of an eye on what's going on and and actually that process of seeing somebody else's project it might be it might be something larger than, than you've got the experience and ability to do at the moment that that process of watching that 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 project go from start to finish is something that you you can use to learn a lot about and i guess the third thing is um lots and lots of property networking events these days i think you can get to know lots of people make lots of contacts that you might might otherwise not make partners and property is a great event i mean you I think they're just starting a um, uh, an event in London, but um, you know Brendan, Brendan Quinn does some great events. Um, he does a Central London and a Wandsworth event. Um, there's obviously P PPN. There's uh, the um, network in London, but there, you know there's, there's property networking events all, all over the country. I mean, there's a there's a great um, property meet near me in in um, Kent, Kent Property Meet, uh, run by a guy called Jazz Doctor. That's uh, that's great value. So. Um, I, in fact, I, last night I was at Baker Street Property Meet, run by run by a guy called Ranjan Bhattacharya. Again, great event, about 200 people there. I was on a on a on a panel. Um, so, I think getting to those events is a great way to learn um, about property. And I think if you want to do a particular thing, then and there's lots of different things that people can do in property. Um, then my tip would be to to just educate yourself and get to know as much about it as possible before you actually jump in absolutely awesome evan thank you so much i think you've given a lot of value to the listeners and hopefully inspired some of them to show what is possible but at the same time showed them the challenges the difficulty and, and how long it could take and how long each deal can take and you know some people might listen to this and say actually development's not for me and that's cool because you know like you said do what you love do what you like and, and follow your passions and you'll do things correct. So, um, Evan, yeah, if people... Go on. I, I was going to say, just if there's one thing that's really, really important, it's that last thing you've just said. Follow your passion. Work out what it is that you love and then just focus on that. The reason the reason that I've been able to get to the point that I have in property is because I I, I love what I do. And so no one's... If you, you, you're always going to do the best job of something that you love doing. So just work out what that is and then and then focus on it really hard. Yeah. yeah solid and make, make make sure you actually do it people don't talk about it let's get it done so yeah. Evan, if people want to get hold of you what's the best way to do it so i, I have my own website it's www.maindonald.com uh melthomes.co.uk is the company website um in terms of social media i'm most active on instagram so just look me up even main donald i'm also on facebook on linkedin and i'm occasionally on twitter <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, I, but, I, but, I, but my preference is Instagram. I, I just like it. I like the pictures. I like the yeah. medium. Um, it's a great platform. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Evan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, real, real pleasure. Just, thanks for having me on. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.